Hey folks, Fry here. When Dorothy and I finished recording this podcast, we realized we were kind of tackling content warnings as they came up in the film summary rather than all up front, and that that was something that was going to be especially necessary for this film. So I am here ahead of the episode to let you know content warnings for drug use, suicide, homophobia, racism, religiosity, dead animals, and uh, biphobia. All right, stay safe and enjoy the episode. and welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, and I'm Vevem, and this is Dorothy. Her pronouns are she, her. Hello. And welcome back to part three of four in our annual Pride Month celebration. This time we are jumping forward from the 1970s to the 1990s with Greg Araki's third installment in his Teen Apocalypse trilogy, Nowhere, from 1997. Shockingly enough, this is my first Greg Araki film somehow. Wow. I know, right? I know you've watched criticism of Araki films before. Yes. But so you never actually sat down and watched one, huh? Mm-mm. No, huh. just uh, secondhand, which always felt like a real gap in my critical knowledge of queer history. Hmm. So I'm glad that this became an opportunity to correct that and... Honestly, I hope we can do more Iraqi movies in future because his stuff is interesting in exactly our wheelhouse of way, honestly. Yeah, I, I've i always liked Iraqi. Mysterious Skin is one of my all-time favorite films. It's also a film that I can't recommend that anybody watch without checking DoesTheDogDie.com first because it is absolutely top to bottom with triggering content, but Iraqi handled it in a way that was a really good film for me to watch, so. And that's his film about uh, child uh, sex workers and, like, the impact that... Well, child sexual assault and then sex workers. Gotcha. And also abduction, alien abduction. Of course, all of his films have alien abduction. Right. It's very important. It's a theme. Actually, I don't think Splendor has alien abduction in it, but... Oh, well, meh. Most of his films. Someday we'll come back around to this, I think. But um. for now, I think this is, even though we mentioned it's the third film in a trilogy. All it's a thematic th- trilogy, not. And all of them are, I think, equally good starting points to his body of work because they're kind of considered emblematic of his themes and the kind of movement he was working in. Unfortunately, we naturally chose the one that is the most difficult to find on streaming, uh, <sighs> because both totally fucked up and, oh god, what's the second one? The Doom Generation. Doom Generation, that's A right. A heterosexual film. A stupendous title. Those are both streaming on, I believe, Canopy, along with Living End, which is his road trip action movie. But this one is currently on archive.org, I believe you can get... A DVD copy, not for cheap, but somehow it managed to fall through the cracks. But yeah, so it is a little harder to find. And Araki describes it as 
an episode of Beverly Hills 90210 on acid, which is extremely accurate. This film is like you've been dropped into a random episode of a an soap ongoing from the 90s. teen soap. Yeah. It's surreal in the best kind of way. A- except with, you know, a lot more graphic on screen stuff. But tonally, this also had a lot of 90210 stars and stars from other ongoing shows. Mm-hmm. I guess wanting to do their I'm a grown up now level up or. <laughs> As is traditional. And you know what? At least those people chose Greg Araki and not Harmony Kareen. Yeah, that's gonna come up. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all too old for Harmony Kareen. Mm, yeah. I bring that up to say that we are going to describe to you the plot, but if it sounds completely impossible to track, that is somewhat by design. But before we get into those specifics, I do want to talk a little bit about why we chose this film and where we're at in our discussion of exploitation, camp, outsider cinema. Uh, Araki is one of the foremost filmmakers of what was known as new queer cinema, which was an early 90s sort of spontaneous movement, queer filmmakers, and actually Araki himself in a really interesting Vulture interview, which I will link in the show notes, describes it as... So the interviewer asks him about modern queer cinema, Uh, And he says, I I don't know what you consider that. I mean, is Bohemian Rhapsody queer cinema? To me, new queer cinema was The Living End, Swoon, Poison, all that stuff. 1990s. (laughs) You do love a Haynes. I love Todd Haynes' work. All that stuff. 1991 to 1994. It was really a specific moment in time relating to Act Up, the AIDS crisis, this handful of five or six filmmakers making movies. It was a very specific thing that happened in culture. That, to me, is like the queer cinema. I mean, having gay characters in movies. Is Will and Grace queer cinema? I don't consider that queer cinema. So when we define this, we're talking not about queer representation, which he goes on to say he thinks is a great thing, but specifically movies that are made about coming from and about queer culture and the environment that they found themselves in under the pressure of the genocide of the AIDS crisis. So yeah, it's a cultural moment and it's a different usage of terminology than when we talk about whether this, this thing has queer representation or whatever. I'll be very interested to see kind of going forward. I think it'll be different because the way that things are made is so diffuse now and there are so many more platforms and a lot, the way independent work comes out is a lot different. But the way he talks about gay filmmakers uh, under AIDS and like the pressures and the stresses, I'll be interested to see what people say about like trans artists working in the current time in a couple years. Because y'all, it's scary. (laughs) Shit's scary. Yeah. Iraqi really is one of the biggest members of this movement, like actively and consciously, and is recognized by that even now. He was the first person to be awarded the queer palm at uh, Cannes. So he's an authoritative voice here. He's also very tired. He's so tired, and I respect it. (laughs) By picking a movie from 97, we have technically gone a little bit outside what he defines as that era, because by 97, AZT is in existence complications from AIDS is not the immediate death sentence 
that it would have been when he was doing his earliest work. I wanted to do this partly because Rachel True is in it and we love Rachel True, but mostly because I think it is an interesting example of he's had about six films under his belt by the time he makes Nowhere, and so it's a chance for to see a, a part of his body of work that is still early in his career comparatively when you look at the full timeline but he's been making movies for long enough that it's also kind of a distillation of the kind of things he's interested in i also think it's interesting because you know most filmmakers by the time they're up to this far in their career you know six movies and even if they started out in indie films if they've had this many successful movies by this point in their career they have become somewhat studioized this is very indie still. I feel like even the Doom generation is a little more structurally typical than this one. Mm -hmm. Well, that, and I mean, that of course is his film working in that same vein as what we discussed with Female Trouble last time, whereas you've made a heterosexual film, you know, that deliberately heightened drama of drawing attention to the the rot underneath this supposedly normative cultural expectation which is what you're going to find in a lot of queer films from the late 20th century it's just you can't say we're perverse everyone's perverse but especially <laughs> all of you pretending your shit don't stink Araki has worked with people who have been doing this for a long time he's worked with Mig Stoll before so Waters is apparently a big fan understandably so mm -hmm. <laughs> And I think Araki is slightly more self-aware than Waters that he's sort of been tokenized as an expert voice of queer cinema at this point. Where, yeah. And he talks about just like, I'm kind of happy to be here. You know, I know that I still kind of get work on and my early films, but I'm in a different place than I was when I made those. And I have settled into who I am. I don't have that same level of angst. I'm very interested to watch his star show, which I have not yet, but... Yeah, I want to watch it too. We may come back to that with a, a bonus episode or something at some point, but it's sounds like it's touching on a lot of similar things to Nowhere, but with that not comfortable, but, you know, established... Refined mm -hmm. positioning. Yes, like he's had the chance to grow up. He's not 20 and constantly in terror for his life anymore so he can revisit those same themes and um one other thing that i wanted to touch on before we get into the guts of the movie is that iraqi is a queer filmmaker he he is not a gay man although he did identify as a gay man originally and um and throughout the 90s a lot of profiles referred to him as a gay man which means that it turned into a total shitstorm in certain very gold starry environments when in the late 90s for two years he was in a long-term committed relationship with Kathleen Robertson an actress who's in this and who is in Splendor uh, his next film and a lot of people were very unhappy <laughs> and at this point he's just like leave me alone he mostly seems to have relationships with and get involved with guys but he had a serious relationship with this one woman for about two years and, and the biphobia jumped out it jumped all the way out yeah so i just wanted to put that on people's uh radars that a lot of people in his works 
are queer, but in a sexually fluid way, rather than the more, the older, more militant form of just Mm -hmm. completely homosexual. Very different vibe. And yeah, that does honestly make Araki one of the few people where when he says, I don't like labels, I'm like, yeah. I get that. Yeah, man, I get that. (laughs) All right, let's see if I can describe the plot of Nowhere such as it is. Southern California. A day in the life. (laughs) I mean, basically. Of a young man doing his best Keanu Reeves impression. Boy, do I have feelings for poor James Duvall. (laughs) Who was in one of Araki's previous films. So, like, there's clearly a history there. They didn't just call up an unknown and were like, we can't get Keanu Reeves. James Duvall was in, you know, a few things in the 90s. I think the thing that most people might have seen him in was probably Independence Day. <laughs> He's in Indi- what? Yeah, he played Randy Quaid's son. My mind is blown. But you know, he was also Frank in Donnie Darko. Of, of course he was. Of course he was. Holy shit. But yeah, he he was in the whole Iraqi trilogy, so. And there is no personal life section on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing. Our listeners know. But yeah, I think probably a lot of people saw him in Independence Day. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. So James Duvall is our main character, doing his best Keanu Reeves, and he is a college student named Dark. And he has a group of friends who are all loosely connected, and they are all planning to go to this party tonight. And it is following throughout their day. So you have, on the one hand, Mel, who is played by Rachel True, who is sort of his casual girlfriend they are but he wants it to be monogamous whereas she is pretty open about the fact that she is not interested in that and she also has a girlfriend named lucifer who is played by kathleen robertson i don't know if she and iraqi are involved during the making or if that came after the film but it was pretty close and dark just hates lucifer so much and honestly she doesn't actually do anything to earn that hate other than be involved with her girlfriend, Mel, <laughs> who is also Dark's girlfriend. The rivalry. <laughs> the one-sided rivalry. Yeah, and it's like, oh. Oh, dude. Oh, dude. And the film's playing a little bit with that whole Dark is, you know, the one old-fashioned soul who just wants a traditional relationship, but also the movie is extremely skeptical of that fact about him. Yeah. Now- Mel also has a little brother named Zero, who is, like, 13, desperately wants to know where this cool party is being held so that he can impress his also 13-year-old girlfriend. Yeah, his 13-year-old girlfriend, Zoe, who is played by Mina Suvari, the girl in the bathtub in American Beauty. God, that poor girl. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, they're cute. They're cute! They are really very much like an actual 13-year-old couple, where they're always hugging, and they're just happy to be here. And the film treats them very carefully. You've talked about this in one of our older episodes, which I think sadly is a little bit unlistenable due to audio issues. Araki is very careful in how he treats his young actors. Yeah, that's one of the things about Mysterious Skin that is very noticeable, is that He's really, really careful with young actors and with keeping 
his editing and everything ethical. And so these kids are just like an actual 13-year-old couple. Mm -hmm. They just hang out and and are very cutesy romantic with one another in the way that 13-year-olds who are in love with the idea of being in love are. And there's a lot of implication that they are on the precipice of maybe something terrible happening to them, but it's in the margins. Yeah, and, and that precipice is more environmental. It's just that because they are on the edges of this whole social circle that's involved in this sort of apocalyptic fall. That's the peril, but nothing actually happens to them. And Araki, again, I really respect him as a filmmaker who works ethically with young actors because the there are scenes of, you know, child sexual assaults in Mysterious Skin and the way they're filmed and the way the whole film shooting was structured was done in such a way as to keep from exposing the children to any danger or even any maladaptive socialization. That's the way to do it when you make films about heavy subjects. Yeah. So that is going on in one subplot. You also have Dirk's other friends, one of whom is Montgomery, who is... He exists. He's the hot boy that Dark has sexy with, dreams about. With heterochromia. Uh-huh. He's got heterochromia, y'all. He is peak 90s sort of floppy Leo hair hot boy. He doesn't really have much characterization beyond that. Nope. Which is fine because the dude kind of can't act. Like at all. And he's kind of gormless. Now, you have his group of friends, which includes Dingbat, Christina Applegate, who is the closest to grounded of all of their friends. Right. Just honestly has some common sense. And braces. And braces. Good for her. That's such funny casting to me because... Most of the actors in this are either about to become very famous or had already done some teen soaps and things like this. And it's very funny to see Christina Applegate as the nerd when her whole teen years, basically, she was the sexy teen daughter on uh, Married with Children. That has to have been purposeful. Oh, yes. 100%. And then you have Egg, who... Her real name is Polly because she's a Pollyanna type, but all of her friends call her Egg. And honestly, this is the plot line that has the most triggering content in it. Yes, because her plot line is that she meets a character known only as the Teen Idol, who is played by Jason Simmons, who was a heartthrob on Baywatch at the time. And he's clearly playing himself. There are mentions of that guy's on Baywatch. They never name him specifically so that they can evoke that sense in the audience at the time. And they go out and they have a nice whirlwind romance night together. And then they go back to his place and he violently sexually assaults her. Very violently. So that is very likely to be triggering if you're considering watching that at home. And her plotline then somewhat dovetails with Dark's other friends who are in a band which includes Cowboy and Bart. Bart is our kind of Kurt Cobain sort of character. He is using heroin. The band is falling apart because his addiction issues are growing more and more serious. And he's also involved in S&M. And we get sort of a couple of S&M tableaus of him between two girls, one of whom's like in white and one of whom's in black. And it's very funny to me because one of those girls 
is played by uh, Debbie Mazar, who was the not Drew Barrymore sidekick of Two-Face in Batman. My God, and the Robin. gay filmmakers. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, this is stunt casting. And their two plot lines parallel because they both come home and in these moments of trauma and disconnection end up watching this televangelist called Moses Helper, played by John Ritter, who you folks at home definitely know as a TV dad if you're close to our age. I mean, also Three's Company. I find that plotline very affecting. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that plotline's very affecting on its own, but I also feel like there's sort of an intertextual element to it because it feels like it hooks into... It, it feels evocative of and probably reminds... I know it reminded me, but probably reminds a lot of viewers of uh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, that sort of intense spiral. Yeah, and the most effective plotline in that was centered around this sort of parasocial longing to get closer to this TV icon. Ellen Burstyn, why you rip out my guts like this? Right? Yeah, so it's these two parallel scenes throughout the movie where they are both... So Cowboy is at home and he has come home, you know, from one of these uh, play sessions and he is real high and also his nipple literally got ripped off just right off and it does not appear that he consented to that but safe words no safe words in this situation polly is just is just dissociating because trauma and she doesn't want to talk to her perfect midwestern family about this and they watch this this grainy televangelist sequence of this preacher telling them how great Jesus is and just how good that'll make you feel. And then they both kill themselves horribly, but not before they have like these crying moments of feeling like they've been comforted. And you're like, oh, they're going to come to Jesus. And they're like, well, yes, they did. And just knowing queer art from the 90s, it's hard not to see some of those echoes of conversion therapy and the only good queer is a dead queer. Yeah, and just nihilism in general. Just sort of sinking in. Also, honestly, I can't figure out how she did it. She pops like a balloon. Blood everywhere. <laughs> and of course, it must be terribly bloody because her room looks very childish and has stuffed animals in it. Uh, not unlike, speaking of Satoshi Kone type movies, Nina's room in Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Except more orange. Meanwhile... Let's see, as Dark goes through his day, there also might be an alien invasion happening. Because various people have vanished, including some girls on the bu at the bus stop. Yep, these three valley girls. Who are played by... Played by Tracy Lords, icon. And two other people also. Shannon Doherty and Rose McGowan. Which again is funny because Rose McGowan is there because she's worked with Iraqi before. She was in the Doom Generation. Shannon Doherty is there because she is known from Teen Soaps. Charmed won't air for another year. And Rose McGowan won't join the ch cast of Charmed for another couple years. After Doherty leaves. Tracy Lords, for those of y'all who don't know, was in Crybaby. She did a lot of like weird outsider cinema in her 20s. But before that, she was a young woman who in her teens, was exploited for pornography. It was a really big 
situation because she was considered one of the biggest porn stars in America while she was underage. And then she, like, finished out her last film, like, as she turned 18, took the money and ran. And now you can't get her films anywhere because uh, she pointed out that they're all illegal. So, like, good for her. Good for her. I hope she got some fuckers arrested. Yeah. Now, Dark is the witness to these valley girls being seemingly vaporized, leaving only their retainers behind. Which is a very funny shot. It's very good. (laughs) And he encounters this again when he goes to the meeting place with his friends before the party, because they're all going to play Kick the Can. It's just hide-and-seek, but high. Yep. That That's it. I don't know why we're calling it Kick the Can. Also, yeah, the alien is just somebody in a Godzilla costume. It's very cute. It looks like the Gorn costume. Yeah, and Dark keeps trying to film these things because that's part of the shtick is that he's constantly trying to frame a narrative with his little camcorder. I have to assume that one of the things, presumably it's also just in the culture, but I have to assume that one of the things Araki is rolling his eyes at is Reality Bites, which is five <laughs> years before this. Uh-huh. That fucking movie. That fucking smug-ass bullshit movie. Wow, ten- tell Ben Stiller how you really feel. <laughs> but while they are playing hide-and-seek but high, Montgomery is one of the people who gets abducted, and only his cross necklace is left behind. So Dark puts it on. What are they throwing shit at? I thought it was meant to be a Reagan portrait, because fuck Reagan. I have no idea. That is my best bet. That that, when they're deciding who is going to be it, they're all hawking loogies at this large graffiti of a stern middle-aged looking man. Another girl has a random low-key S&M session with with her older boyfriend. Yes, that is Alyssa and Elvis. Yes, and Elvis likes to be tied up and spanked. And Alyssa's game. You know what? She seems a little bit lost, but willing to to try. Yeah. She's not much of a dom, but she is definitely down to tie you up and spank you, and they have a good time. That plot line was interesting just in terms of, you know, 90s soaps where it's so common to have the teen girl who has an older boyfriend, and he's usually, whether we're talking about Buffy or anything else, it's the sexy older boy who- He's dangerous. Uh-huh. Now, Elvis has some issues because it's apocalyptic movie, but as far as their relationship goes, he he is looking for a dom, and they seem to have a nice relationship as it goes. (laughs) And then Zero and Zoe meet up, and everybody tries to get to the party at Jujifruit's house. And Jujifruit is only- we only see Jujifruit in one shot because it's that kind of party. Gigi Fruit is played by Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers. Which, of course, because we're doing 90s callbacks, but also, of course, because their biggest song, Pepper, is nothing if not the musical version of a Greg Araki film. <laughs> yeah, just nihilistic, disaffected. They were all in love and die- with Diane, they were doing Women it in, in Texas. Texas. Like a lot of these Day in the Life movies, all the characters converge on this party. They've all made it for one reason or another, except for our two characters who, who are dead. Who are dead. I feel like that wouldn't necessarily stop them Given. in this movie, but it does. And the news that they are dead causes all hell to break loose at the party, because Egg's brother is one of the characters there, and his name 
is Ducky. Because, oh yes. Yeah. And Dingbat has spent the whole movie obviously and hopelessly in love with Ducky. She deserves better. But he throws himself in the pool and she she rescues him and breathes him back to life. So good for you guys. Mm-hmm. And Elvis gets into an altercation with somebody. Bart's roommate. The drug dealer for selling him bad drugs, allegedly. And it escalates quickly. And it's amazing. It's so artful. Honestly, we should have called this month People Dunk on Warhol. (laughs) Because they get into a fight, it escalates, a knife gets involved, and then Elvis beats this guy's head in with a can of Campbell's soup. Yep, Campbell's tomato soup. And Araki makes sure to get it perfectly in the frame, drenched in this fake-looking blood. It's so good. (laughs) And that is never resolved. It just happened. Nihilism. Happens at the party. Mm -hmm. Um, The kiddos do make it to the party eventually, but they have some minor perils on the way. (laughs) Zero's mom's car gets stolen by a band of roving lesbians. Yes, the genders come out in force to scare these kids. Because first we have the characters referred to as the scary drag queens. That's just what they're credited as. They're not scary in any way, and they're just headed to the party. Yep. So if the kids hadn't been scared of them... They'd just be some drag queens who hitched a ride on the back of the car. Uh Uh-huh. And then a gang of lesbians. Well, (laughs) escapees from the road warrior. (laughs) Yeah. Steal their car. And of course... They're very fancy, though. They kind of look like the master ceremonies from from Cabaret. Cabaret. Of course, as you might expect, both Zero and Zoe are dressed in white and just so pure, adorable. They have Zero's actor, um, Joshua Gibran Mayweather, in this huge, way too big for him, white t-shirt. Like, it makes him look even younger than he's supposed to be. Yeah, but like, kids just looked like that back then. (laughs) Like, I went to school with kids who looked just like that the shirt that literally goes down to your knees and yeah it made everybody look so young (laughs) in retrospect infants yeah and mina suvari has her hair up in one of those sort of bun ponytails with the spiky ends all sticking out looks like she ought to be wearing one of those really cheap chokers i feel like that choker was spiritually there but we never find out what happens to them or anyone else at the party after that because dark gets bored and existential and leaves well, especially because Mel t- tells him she's not interested in committing to him. She wants to get railed by a couple of Swedish twins. All right. Like, that's not my bag. But honestly, if you have that opportunity and you're into it, who wouldn't want that story? Mm-hmm. <laughs> These dudes are named Ski and uh, and Swim. And they are so blonde. They're already blonde, but also it's frosted. You know the Winklevoss twins in the social network? <laughs> that. <laughs> I don't. The same. <laughs> it's the same. At which point Lucifer gets tired of of Mel banging other people too. Fair enough. Right. But I mean, Lucifer spent all this time sort of invested in acting like she's chill with it. And I have complicated feelings about this plot because mm-hmm. Rachel True as Mel is playing the character very well. And... On one level, the character hasn't done anything wrong because everybody involved has agreed that this is the setup. But at the same time, she's definitely sort of emotionally manipulating these people because she knows 
that she can sort of have her cake and eat it too. Yeah, no, you're right. She is, as much as Rachel True does bring some grounding to the character, she's not really written extensively. Yeah, and I think it it is a bit unfortunate that the one character whose sexual behavior is really portrayed as damaging to other people is a black woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Rocky's not a white filmmaker, but no. given what I know about Rachel True's career in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Rachel True has been treated like shit she's through like, basically her entire career. She's like not invited to most craft fan mates. What the fuck? And she's not on most of the craft merchandise. It's bullshit. So it's one of those things that I don't think was intentional, and I think it is one of the meatier roles she's ever had, you know, throughout the 90s. But at the same time, just putting a pin in that. Yeah, I think it is worth bringing up. So after all of that blows up, Dirk goes home and is angsting in his room with his video camera, you know, talking about the end of the world and all of that. And he has, dear diary, I swear I've never been so depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Dear diary. Like, he's even doing a Keanu Reeves voice. And to some extent, that's just what James Duvall sounds like. But also, this is a Keanu. (laughs) You've brought me a Keanu. (laughs) Honestly, from a modern perspective, I find this last monologue pretty interesting because it's about how, you know, our generation is going to witness the end of everything and shit's real bad. And obviously, every generation, I think, feels like the world is coming to an end. You know, that's part of what Iraqi is playing with in his films is... He talks about in that interview about how when you're that age, it feels like your emotions are so powerful, it's warping the universe around you. Yeah. But at the same time, it's really hard not to listen to this and think think of, like, kids today and how horrible things are for them. Yeah. But this was Gen X feeling so intensely. And it's honestly an interesting antidote to how a lot of Gen X movies couldn't really engage with that level of emotion. They were so wedded to that disaffection that they didn't necessarily dig down into what was underneath it and what was creating that disaffected pose. Whereas this is definitely a film playing around with nihilism, but it acknowledges that it's... This is why. (laughs) Everybody's scared. Everybody is lonely. Yeah, the mention of how those emotions sort of warp the world and warp existence and reality and perceptions i think we see that a lot in the incidental dialogue of this movie because every time somebody mentions a class that they were going to it's like hey hey did you get notes from history of worldwide famines or do you have notes on nuclear acceleration in the (laughs) and on the one hand it's funny to think that everybody's just taking classes called that but i think it could equally be that they're just talking about you know their history class or their civics class but it's filtered through much more direct language mm-hmm. as portrayed in this film. Like it's the experience of going to these classes and seeing that this is what the world adds up to. The history of human atrocity yeah. on paper. And then And then Montgomery comes back. He just got abducted and he's fine now. And they lay in bed together and they touch foreheads very sweetly and talk about how they want to be each other's one and only in like their whole universe because you're twenty. You're twenty and that's healthy. Mm-hmm. And then Montgomery explodes. (laughs) It's really funny. (laughs) Yeah, so so Dark says, you know, you can stay here on one condition, that you never ever leave me. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then he explodes. It 
it's not just a chest burster. They put a whole fucking alien bug in there. Just a giant <laughs> fucking Dave's apartment ass rope. Voiced by Gregor Rocky. And he is not... He's not into commitment. <laughs> he did not consent to this. He's just like, I'm out of here. And then the movie ends. It's dark just stares. <laughs> just covered in gore <laughs> from his crush. So grim and so funny. But, like, I think that's just a one-night stand. Yeah. Where this, where this guy tells you, you know, sure, I'll stay with you forever. You know, I'm so into you. Bug. Walks out. <laughs> yeah. It should feel mean-spirited, right? That, like, this character finally finds a romantic connection that's interested in this, him in the same way and then it blows up in his face. But in practice, it's good. It's so absurd. <laughs> It's just the perfect cherry on top of everything else. On top of nothing making sense. (laughs) Tune in next week. Yeah. (laughs) Like, where's this going? We don't know. Nobody knows. Because this is one episode (laughs) in life. Oh my god, it's perfect. (laughs) Also, we mentioned before that uh, one of the actors in this goes on to be in Donnie Darko. It's because Donnie Darko has seen this film. It Uh includes the fridge scene. Frank was here, left to get beer. Shot for shot, it's the same. Uh Uh-huh. It's dark. Is it the one in Donnie Darko? Donnie Darko does feel very much like a cleaned up, sanitized attempt to grapple with the same things, and it's not as effective. Like, there's a reason Donnie Darko was super popular for a minute and then sort of became a punchline almost immediately. Because it deserves it. Although the fear and love scene is still good. (laughs) There are parts of Donnie Darko that are great, but it doesn't add up to anything in in the same way this does because it's not raw yeah it has that veneer over it where it it is pretending to really cut open society and see the rot underneath of it but and it's also weird and awkward because donnie darko they felt the need to set it in the past we'll set it back in the 80s we'll make this sort of this retrospective look at our society at a turning point it it wasn't now in the way this was yeah iraqi's films become something of a time capsule from our perspective in 2021 which i think is good in its own way but at the time they were extremely now and extremely pop culture laden that always gets pointed out about his movies yeah and this is why i kept pointing out all of those references is that because this is a very reference dense movie that anybody who was just watching tv at the time would have been able to decode immediately it's such a revolutionary film in some ways by making the stuff you're seeing on tv but we're in it now you know i think people now are used to the token queer in soaps but that really wasn't you had the sad gay in dawson's creek whose plotline sucked and never went anywhere except that he was jen's bestie and she was the best character on that terrible show and then she died. And then she dies, yeah, of the cancers. Sadly, after giving birth to a baby and therefore having, you know, given her bad girl life meaning. Mm-hmm. Dawson's Creek was a bad show that I watched all of, y'all. See, I really want to watch Degrassi, which has situations like the punk girl with the mohawk gets knocked up literally the first time she has sex at a party. Incredible. I really want to watch Degrassi because it sounds wild as shit and much more interesting than Dawson's Creek. This is essentially the radical concept of, I'm going to take popular media and make it queer for us. 
And also, how does that affect our reception of this type of melodrama? Because, like, teen soaps are all about people fucking. Except for, uh, (laughs) Tori Spelling, who is a virgin. So creepy. Tori Spelling's character was not allowed to fuck because her father, Aaron Spelling, had a mandate. I say again, so creepy. So, after a season or two... Her whole character got subsumed into the narrative of I'm the virgin in much the same way that Jessica Simpson's life was ruined. See, I'm having to contextualize <laughs> everything. What is our podcast but an, an endless parade of references we have to stop to explain? And that's kind of what this movie is, is by saying, hey, we're here in it. You have to grapple with what it means to be having crazy sex and drugs and and how these can't necessarily be lighthearted diversions when the dangers operate differently around you. Fuck Harmony Corrine, though. Yeah, you know what? We referenced that earlier. Let's take a minute to say why fuck Harmony Corrine. Yeah, sorry. I know this doesn't really fit in, but... Listen. But it's something that... Dunking on Harmony Corrine fits in everywhere. So... This was one of the things that just sort of while we were doing our background discussion like about this film and sort of what our thoughts were off air. This is one of the things that came up was that I feel like in a lot of ways, a lot of filmmakers like Kareen sort of zeroed in on trying to replicate the rawness and the at the time transgressiveness of new queer cinema works. But just make it about things I'm interested in. And in practice, that just resulted in a lot of gross, exploitative, violent, cruel content about children. Because in contrast to how Iraqi handled his child actors, the ones on Kareem's set seemed to have been quite traumatized. Yep. And he was, you know, literally just going around grabbing kids he saw on the streets of New York. Now, he didn't direct kids, but he was the writer of kids in so much as the as it was a writer yeah (laughs) and kareen's work just sort of over the course of his career has constantly been sort of biting at this edginess that feels weirdly unearned because he has to go so extreme and grotesque and has to be so exploitative often of very young actors by having them very directly engage with extremely sexual dialogue or simulated sexual action on screen. Whereas in this, Araki is dealing with sexual violence and dangerous sex and questions of danger in general and, and beatings and, and drugs. But because what he's portraying is coming from sort of a more emotionally honest place, He's able to do it without the entire selling point being, look how lurid and shitty this is. Ain't it fucked up? Yeah. Even though it is totally fucked up. Hey! Hey. That was his first Teen Apocalypse movie. Yeah, in conclusion, fuck Harmony Kareen. We would have to be paid a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, that's just one of those things that I keep often coming back to when I see these sort of transgressive queer works and new queer works is then I look at stuff like New French Extremity in horror or the works of Harmony Kareen and it's like I'm not as convinced that Kareen is saying anything. <laughs> You'll put 
violence and trauma on the screen, but why? Except to do it. And that's not saying, you know, the straights can't do violence and trauma. Often they very well can, but a lot of these movies that get popular because of the violence and trauma aren't doing anything with it. I mean, I did say last week that David Lynch is just the coward's John Waters, didn't I? But Cronenberg. I do love Cronenberg. He's having gender feels and he's not sure what they are. But like Cronenberg's an example. Like that's something that's extreme and grotesque and uncomfortable, but it's doing something. Right. It has something to say with those thoughts. The Fly sure is about the horrors of terminal illness. And genetic illness. Yep. This is neither here nor there or anything, but I did desperately want to read it. And I guess I can say it's because we're talking about new queer cinema of the 90s versus queer film now. I mentioned that Iraqi has mostly moved into television, which a lot of queer filmmakers seem to have done. We'll come back to that next week. Yeah. But he directed an episode of Riverdale, which this interview comes up on, and he talks about, I mean, Archie was kissing some dude this season. Anything they can do to gay bait the audience, they do. But they all do it. It's like, what's his face? Nick Jonas. It's like, I fucking pose my underwear, grab my dick, show my ass. It's like, whatever, I'll do anything. But I'm still straight. If you want to get super queer theory philosophical, it's fetishizing a straight guy to a ridiculous point. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, in his show, um, Now Apocalypse, which is the one he's working on now, it's engaging in actuality, textually, with queer fluidity. Yeah. It's like if we play with queerness and play with the transgressive, but displace it into a role, it's fine. Then we can actually just keep the queers over there. It's like the history of Broadway in the tw- in, <laughs> in the all of it. Nathan Lane's quote is still some king shit. One time in an interview, someone asked Nathan Lane uh, about his sexuality. And he was like, I'm a 50-year-old single man who works primarily on Broadway. And then what do you think? (laughs) If there's an emotion that can sum up queer men who survived the 80s, it's tired. (laughs) (laughs) Any final thoughts on Iraqi before we wrap it up for the week? I like Iraqi. And his works are not for everyone. For a lot of reasons. Like, visually, probably. Oh, it is searingly painful to look at. Yeah. But also, content-wise, there's a lot of triggering content in his works. But he and Todd Haynes, both coming out of the new queer cinema movement, are two of my favorite filmmakers. Because they just touch on things thematically, and they evoke performances that really do something for me i like his work he's good even when it's sort of clumsy and flaily and wild it's really doing something before we go i do want to i forgot to do it the last couple weeks because my brain is a sieve and this 2020 plus sucks but i do want to while we're here uh recommend an additional film for y'all to check out in the new queer cinema scene which is a documentary from 1994 was one of the last films that director Marlon Riggs worked on before he died of AIDS-related complications. And it's part of Black New Queer Cinema, a documentary called Black Is, Black Ain't. We've talked before that one of the limitations of our podcast is just not having the expertise to talk about things like Dunye. But I always want to continually like recommend those things so that you and we can keep 
learning and, and expanding our knowledge base. Yeah, and and like it's not that we avoid watching those, it's that we try to not speak for exactly those, yeah. those works that um that are really for and engaging with a community that we're not in. But yeah, so th- that is that and I'll include also some uh some more additional I think I recommended uh Disclosure last year because it had just come out. But in case I haven't, Disclosure is truly a wonderful film about trans rep in 20th century filmmaking and it's really really good. And Araki himself recommends Poison. Poison was a trip. Yep. A good trip? Maybe. <laughs> Interesting. I, I enjoyed watching it. And that about wraps us up for this week. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. If you liked this, you can find more of us by searching for Trash and Treasures on your podcatcher of choice. We'd appreciate it if you'd give us a five-star rating or review. If you have the chance, it helps folks find us. And you can also find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash trashandtreasures, where I am still working on our backlog of bonus episodes. And you can get recipe guides from our Drunk Book Club. You can email us, trashtreasurespod at gmail.com. We love getting mail. And we are on social media, on Tumblr, trashtreasurespod.tumblr.com, and Twitter, at trashpod. want to give a shout-out this week to at uh, B. Thomas A. Uh, it seems like our Bride of Frankenstein episode drew in a lot of new listeners who are maybe new to the show, uh, who just have a lot of appreciation for Whale and his camp excellence. It's a good film, y'all, it turns out. It's good shit. So thank you for listening. (laughs) Next week we'll be wrapping up Pride Month 2021 with one more 90s filmmaker in one of her later works. We're actually going to be revisiting Jamie Babbitt, who you all probably best know for, but I'm a cheerleader. Itty Bitty Titty Committee. Until next time, take care of yourselves. See y'all. Oh.